All right, so last week we began our teaching series on suffering, and we used the image, and we're continuing to use this image of grapes into wine. From Oswald Chambers, we thought on the idea that you cannot drink grapes, right? How ridiculous does that sound? Grapes must be squeezed. Grapes must be pressed into wine. Likewise, you cannot become all that God intends for you in Jesus unless you too are squeezed. And this is best understood and expressed and evidenced in Jesus, right? Jesus took on the full cost of what our sins and what our sufferings would have done to us. So we began last week with the idea that before you suffered anything, your suffering first passed through our Father's providential hands and Jesus' nail-scarred hands. So Heritage, our little church, that has been around since 1950. Heritage, both individually and corporately, has experienced deep suffering over the past several years. And our suffering, we listened to, we thought through, our suffering has stopped our joy, and it has stopped our growth, both as individuals and corporately as a church. It has distracted us from what our true mission is in this life, why we wake up and our heart still beats and our brain still sends impulses. Suffering confirms and deepens who you really are. It will either grow you to be more selfless and self-giving, or it will make you more selfish and self-absorbed. In times of suffering, this is what naturally that you and I do. In times of suffering, we cut things out of our lives that we feel like are not necessary right now for our survival. We take our little chickies and we put them under our wings and we just kind of become a recluse and we're that turtle that goes back to our shell. I have seen people cut God and cut church out of their lives in times of suffering. But sadly and ironically enough, those are the two things that they need most when they are suffering. Now, last week we saw the big idea was this, that God is completely sovereign over all things, even suffering. And because of this, our God can govern all things towards our greatest good in Jesus. And we had to remind ourselves that what we're really looking for is not a better county commissioner, not a better mayor. What our souls are really looking for is not a better governor or a better president. What we are truly looking for underneath it all is a king and a sovereign who can truly govern all things towards our good. That's what our souls need the most. And that is our foundational belief as we begin to build this theology of suffering. Let's get to our proposition. The big idea that's driving and moving the engine behind our text, what I pray God through his spirit and through the preaching will convince you of today. And it's this, that Jesus is the ultimate son and he restores true joy in our and in your deepest suffering. Christianity alone provides us the only worldview that provides a sufficient understanding of our sufferings. Every other worldview, religious, philosophical, agnostic, doesn't matter, does not fully account for the complexity, the beauty, and the brokenness of this life. I went so far last week to tell you there really is no true thing as an atheist. Underneath it all is some sort of pain, some sort of suffering that they have wrongly applied in some sense to our God. 
Traditionally and historically, there are two ways that Christians understand the relationship between joy and suffering. The first is that joy and suffering are experienced back to back. There can be periods of suffering, and then one day it feels as if in our souls the light switch has just flipped, and then there's joy again. You've experienced this. And here's why. Because in Psalm 30, verse 5, David says something like this. He says that his anger is for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. But here's the phrase. Sorrow lasts for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. The second way is that joy and suffering, now this is the strange thing. Joy and suffering for a Christian can be experienced simultaneously at the same time. We can have joy and pain in the same event, in the same relationship. Why? Because we are made in the image of God, and God's word says something like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. The apostle Paul has this phrase of sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That is how complex human suffering and human joy is. That's how complex our lives are, because we are made in the image of a complex God. But naturally, we have a beautiful example of this with childbirth. A mother suffers physically and emotionally from conception through delivery. Right, ladies? It doesn't stop there, right? Right alongside that pain is deep, intense joy that, to my understanding, there's not much else out on the planet that's like this. From both of these truths, we see that suffering is far more complex than what America has taught us. You most likely come from a background that when you're in pain and when you're in suffering, you put your big pants on and you push through it. That's Greek philosophy. It's actually not the Americana. America cannot provide you the tools necessary to get through your suffering. It's called stoicism, which we may talk about throughout this theology of suffering. It is insufficient to help you to deal with the complexities of the sufferings and the joys that you experience in this life. Now, to help us understand both relationships of joy and suffering, we're going to look briefly at the life of Naomi and how God works joy into suffering through a son. We'll see the son for Naomi, and then we're going to see the son that God intends for us to experience the sin still today. All right, so that's today in a nutshell. Let's get to our first point. So in Ruth chapter 1, what we're going to see is that despite her bitterness, Naomi sees God's hand in her suffering. Now, in my early years of pastoring, I preached through the book of Ruth. The series was called Bittersweet, and it's on our website. If you haven't read the book of Ruth before, or if you weren't part of the church back then, you can check it out. But you now know today something more about your pastor and me that you did not know, that this is my favorite book of the Bible. Now, I need to revisit some of the events in Naomi's life so you can understand today's text. Naomi lived in Bethlehem. Now, anytime you read Bethlehem in the Bible, you need to perk up. Because those of us this side of the cross know that is the birthplace of our Lord Jesus. She was married to a man named Elimelech. Now, Things are very different in American society than a traditional Middle Eastern society. In a traditional Middle Eastern society, parents named their children certain names to reflect something of a desire about their character, about who they believe this child is going to be. 
Today, we, we see like a name on a brand, and we just name our kids that. It's very odd how we name people in American society. Elimelech's name means in Hebrew, my God, that's Eli, and Melech, which is king. His name means my God is king. What a name, right? But Elimelech's name, tragically, did not reflect his character because he did not trust in God as his king. You see, famine hit Bethlehem. Famine challenged and confirmed Elimelech's faith, because that's what suffering does. Suffering will confirm who you really are. Suffering is a barometer. Suffering is a gauge for you, for your own soul. And instead of trusting God to provide, this is what Elimelech did. He took Naomi, he took his two boys, and they left Israel for a Gentile country called Moab. Despite God telling Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is the land, and I'm going to bless you. I'll be a blessing through you. I will always provide for you. At the sight of famine, he gone. Now, many of you know what this feels like. You have a spouse that does not love or follow God. There is much grief and much suffering that comes by this. Amen? Just like Joseph from last week, God uses the actions and the intentions of people in our lives, not for what they want to do to us, but to advance his mission and his redemptive purposes in and through us. So while in Moab, Elimelech tragically dies, and the writer does not tell us how Elimelech dies, but Naomi is left as a widow in a foreign country. Now imagine how we treat foreigners in this country and try to speculate for a moment how the true people of God were maybe treated in other countries. Naomi is left alone with her two boys. These boys grow up and they take on Moabite women as their wives. One of these wives is named Ruth, which is the namesake of our book. And then a decade goes by. And during this decade, neither couple bears children, which we'll get to a little bit later. Then, tragically, Naomi's boys die as well. And we don't know why or how. Now, some of you know the sheer horror and terror of what it feels like to lose a son or to lose a daughter. That is a deep suffering. Naomi has experienced famine, she has been widowed, and now she has lost her boys. She is alone, and she is empty. Now, that is how she feels, but it wasn't true, because she had a daughter-in-law by the name of Ruth who loved her so much. Naomi's God became Ruth's God. Ruth vowed to follow Naomi wherever she would go, it's one of the most beautifully expressed covenants in the Bible and one of the reasons why I love the book of Ruth so much. In this same season, somehow, before Twitter, before television, before newspapers, God providentially allows for news to reach Moab that in Bethlehem, the famine's done. So Naomi decides it's time to go home. And Ruth will not leave her. That's our context. 
Now let's jump into our scripture reading from the morning. In verses 19 through 21, the writer says that they both went until they came to Bethlehem. When they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women of Bethlehem said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? The first thing that you need to see from these verses is that suffering has changed Naomi. Remember, suffering confirms or just deepens who you really are. The Bethlehem community can even see this. Suffering changed Naomi by drawing out her bitterness that was inside of her. And that is our subject for Press But Not Crush today. Bitterness is a byproduct of your take on your suffering. To be bitter means that you are angry, that you are hurt, and that you are resentful because of some kind of suffering. And usually, though not all the time, bitterness is related to the idea that you think that you are suffering unjustly. There is no reason why this thing has been taken away or this relationship has been taken away. You can't conceive of an idea. You are suffering unjustly. Naomi clearly is bitter. In fact, she tells the Bethlehem community, do not call me Naomi. In Hebrew, her name meant pleasant. That was her parents' vision for her life. Instead, she tells the community to call her Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew. Naomi is bitter because to her experience, to her understanding, when she left Bethlehem, she left full. She was living life to the fullest. And when she returned to Bethlehem, perhaps decades later, she came back empty. So you have to think about this for a moment. If you were to take a look at Naomi's life, what did she consider to mean a full life? What did a full life look like for Naomi? And what does an empty life look like for Naomi? And at the bottom of it all, the ultimate thing that defined her fullness and her emptiness was family. Is that clear? Okay, good. Naomi has a young, also widowed daughter-in-law that will follow her wherever she will go. But right now, Naomi cannot see past her pain to see what she actually has in God and in Ruth. And for those of you who have ever suffered deeply, you know what this feels like, right? She feels empty, even though she really is not empty. But that is the nature of suffering and bitterness. What it does, it diminishes your capacity to see things rightly. And that is another necessary ingredient that you and I need in our theology of suffering. Before we go through our next suffering, or you need to be reminded right now if you're going through something, the nature of suffering diminishes your capacity to see things rightly. You and I naturally have blind spots, but those blind spots are exacerbated by our suffering. This is why you need God and you need community, specifically church community, when you suffer. Suffering deals a blow to your ability to rightly see yourself, to rightly see God, to rightly see your purpose for living, 
and to rightly see people. And God uses his people, as he does with the Bethlehem community, to start coming alongside them as they suffer. Now let's think about for a moment what Naomi valued above all things. Don't get me wrong. I believe at this point that Naomi, in some sense, to her experience, loves God. But God is not ultimate to her. God is a value, but it's not the all-surpassing value. And by her suffering, she's going to learn this, and she's going to grow through this. Think about what Naomi valued above all things. What makes a person full? What makes a person feel like they have ultimate meaning and ultimate significance in life is not family. It's God. Because think about it this way. Our Lord Jesus never married. Was his life a lack of meaning or significance? No. Our Lord Jesus, despite liberal critics, never had children. Does that mean that his life was a waste? He has no purpose, no meaning? No. Jesus is the best example of what it means to be human because he's 100% human in addition to being 100% God. What that means for you and I is that ultimate significance is not found by focusing solely and only upon family. If that was the case, our Lord Jesus was a failure. He had a family that he was carving out that went beyond DNA and physical boundaries. Do not get me wrong, heritage. Family is such a joy. They are such a blessing. But family is not ultimate. Family does not define your ultimate meaning and significance. God does. Yet at this point, God is not what fills Naomi. Family filled her more than God filled her. And suffering revealed this. Now, at the beginning of the year, as I have done over the years, I have kind of shown you what the books that Tisa and I are reading or books I think are essential for you to read this year, depending on what's going on with our preaching calendar and our teaching calendar on Wednesday nights. And one of the books I encourage you to read was C.S. Lewis's Problem of Pain. Here's a quote from the book. C.S. Lewis says, In the first and lowest operation, pain shatters the illusion that all is well. Now the second shatters the illusion that what we have whether good or bad in itself, is our own, and it's enough for us. Now God, who has made us, knows what we are, and that our happiness lies in him. Yet we will not seek it in him, as long as he leaves us any other resorts where it can be even plausibly be looked for. What then can God do in our interests, but make our own life less agreeable to us and take away that plausible source of false happiness. Wow. That's not a tender lamb speaking right there, but a roaring lion, maybe even Aslan himself through CS. What Lewis is actually saying is that suffering reveals things as they actually are. Naomi's suffering revealed that she found ultimate significance for her life in a lesser thing, a good thing, but a lesser thing. So when God, by his providence, allows suffering to come her way, 
and take her husband away, take her sons away, it is revealing that Naomi's ultimate source of happiness is in something good, but not in something ultimate. And I think that God still uses suffering the same way today. Suffering, like Lewis says, shatters the illusion that all is well in this life. As I said last week, the existence of suffering is actually not the greatest challenge of Christianity, but supposed atheism and secularism. Both ideas believe that there's no God, so what they resort to is themselves. That by human goodness, human intelligence, human achievement, life will just progressively get better. That idea started in the West, in Europe and America, in a time called the Enlightenment, in the 1700s, 1800s. And it's been shattered time and time again by America's Civil War, definitely by World War I, by World War II. And we should have been reminded of this during this global pandemic that we went through that human achievement alone cannot solve every single problem. Suffering is the greatest threat to atheism and secularism. Despite all human achievement, all that we have accomplished as humanity, suffering still exists today. And I believe at this point in Ruth 1, Naomi genuinely knows God. But her ultimate significance right now didn't lie in God. St. Augustine, of which you know is my favorite saint, once said something like this. He said, God wants to give us something, but cannot because our hands are full. There's nowhere for him to put it. We see this in Naomi. She said, I left Bethlehem full. So what could God give to her if she believes she has everything when she doesn't truly experience him? She considers herself full. She has a husband. She has two sons. we got to remember, they are experiencing famine right now. They're not just hungry, as our deacon Vernon says. They are hungry. But this is what you got to realize. In her interpretation of her experience, famine did not make her feel empty. Though literally herself, her husband, her boys were hungry. She still felt emotionally full because her husband and her sons were what was feeding her soul. But that puts relationships in a position that will cause them to falter and break. Because your spouse, your children, your grandchildren cannot give to your soul what it ultimately needs. No relationship can, romantic or platonic. When we turn to other things for fullness and significance, we don't need God. We believe that our hands are full. So sometimes, sometimes, God uses suffering to help us see this. But Naomi's suffering brought her back to Bethlehem, which by the end of the book will bring her back to God. Now look at what God, or what Naomi says about God here before we move on. She calls God the Almighty. This is El Shaddai. Naomi acknowledges that God is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign king. Naomi acknowledges it was God who brought her from Moab to Bethlehem 
empty. You know what she's doing right now? Her theology is right. She's doing theology. God is king. He is governor of all things. He's sovereign over all things, even famine and even death. However, Naomi is applying her theology wrongly. And she's doing that because of her bitterness. Do you see that? Next week, God willing, we are going to see another person who suffered, who has the same belief about God, but applies it rightly. Naomi believes that God is against her. It's as if her life is actually a courtroom, and God is the primary witness in the accusations and the defense of her life. That is what suffering does to Naomi, to you, and to me. Suffering jades reality. Suffering jades your view of God. And heritage, you must cling on to that truth. <laughs> cling on. I did not mean to do that. <laughs> All right, Trekkies. I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Suffering tempts you to incorrectly apply what you know about God to life. And to be honest, I believe that this is what's happened at Heritage. In virtually every instance of a person leaving our church over these three years, there was some kind of suffering, challenge, or adversity that was attached to it. And when I would speak to that person about why they're leaving the church, they would say, I prayed about it. God wants me to leave the church. I can experience God But as you can see, just from our snippet, just from like a section of our great Bible, this is not the pattern that we see God when he is genuinely working in a person's life. As he's working genuinely in Naomi's life. This is not the pattern that we see throughout the Bible. Underneath that statement isn't the prompting of God, it's the prompting of pain. Elimelech takes Naomi away from community, from her sisters in Bethlehem, the women of Bethlehem. God brings Naomi back to Bethlehem, back to her sisters, back to the women of Bethlehem. Last week, Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. But God reunites Joseph with his dad and with his brothers. Peter denies Jesus, and Jesus initiates reconciliation with him by the Sea of Galilee. And they do it over grilled meats, you know? It's biblical. There's fire and meat. That's why I grilled my hot dog over the fire. I didn't leave it to Earl. I did it myself. <laughs> In pain and suffering, you will want to leave God and church family. You will. I've been there too. Okay. You will easily confuse your feelings with faith. With your will and God's will. Suffering is meant by our enemy to isolate you from God and community. You know, that's what lions do, right? When they're going after prey, they isolate them from the flock. 
and the attack in numbers. It just breaks my heart when I see it on those National Geographic shows, but it's true. Suffering is meant by our God to connect you to community, to connect you to your brothers, to connect you to your sisters, like God is going to do with Naomi. God is sovereign over Naomi's experience with famine, the death of her husband, and the death of her two boys. He is not less in control during famine or less in control in times of death. Though God is sovereign over these things, and he has providentially allowed them. Last week we read the Heidelberg Catechism, right? All things pass through our God's fatherly hands. But this does not mean that God is a witness against Naomi. This does not mean that God is against her. And this is something that I believe that we need to still address as individuals in our church and as our own church family. You will feel like God is against you when you suffer. But the reality is, if you are a Christian, God is never against you. If God is for us, you finish it. Who can be against us? Where does that come from? <laughs> Solid. Romans 8, right? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? If God is for us, who can be against us? The Father forsook Jesus, so he would never forsake you. The Father abandoned Jesus on the cross, so he could adopt you, permanently adopt you into his family. But when you are suffering, you feel that God is against you. That's the nature of suffering. So, what are you going to do when you're suffering? When those fires are raging and in your hurt, you are believing that God is against you, that he is the primary witness in the defense against your life. There is a, not a well-known writer, but beloved to me. His name is Ahith Fernando. He is a Sri Lankan pastor. He pastors in the East. He wrote a book that's called um, The Call to Joy and Pain. It's meant to help pastors in their early years go through the joy and pain of pastoral ministry. I needed this in my, and it's great that I can say this, throughout my first decade of pastoring. Because there are many times when I put my hand to the plow, when this ox was muzzled, that I wanted to give up. I'll be honest. I wanted to read to you an excerpt from this because it was very, it was a balm to my soul from this book. Because in this excerpt, this Sri Lankan pastor gives us our strategy for suffering and what to do in suffering. Here's what he says. He says, when our faith grows weak, not if, but when, we learn to preach to ourselves. So that God's word, which is the basis of our faith, may impact us. Because our heart is struggling with the situation. Our mind has to preach to the heart the truth that we know from the word. We must learn to stop listening to our self-pitying conversations and start preaching deep realities to ourselves. Do you see the strategy? that Pastor Fernando says, in your suffering, you must become a preacher. You ever wonder why, if you ever read the Psalms, how much David talks to himself? Soul, why are you so downcast? 
Soul, why do you feel this way? Hope in God. You'll praise him again. That's the great as the deer psalm. The strategy is, in times of suffering, you must preach to yourself. Your heart will not be in it, so your mind has to do it. The question is, where do you learn how to do this? You want to come to Bible exposition with me at seminary? Do you want to come to Christ-centered expository preaching 101 in seminary? Want to come to homiletics and hermeneutics class with me? You learn it in church community. You learn it by doing what you're doing right now. That's why you should put your phones away during the preaching. Because you are learning how to be the preacher for yourself when the fires of your life are raging. And your heart will not be into this. That's why your mind has to be resolved. Paul says in Romans 12, that's why your mind has to be renewed towards this right now. Because when you're suffering, your mind, if it's not prepared, will not be able to lead your hearts. You've got to do it now when the fires are low. Before Vernon throws those Christmas trees on us. Okay? Where do you learn to preach God's word to yourself? You learn it in community. Sitting underneath preaching and teaching together as a church family. I believe that Heath is right. We need to learn how to preach God's truth to our hearts when we are suffering. And that necessitates church community. That necessitates church family. It's not, uh, maybe I can join. Maybe I can do this. Somewhere out there, wherever you are, you must belong to God in a church family. If not here, elsewhere. This is where we learn how to speak to ourselves in our suffering. We must learn how to stop listening to our own self-pity and start listening to God's word. And we do this by latching on to our church family even more when suffering. Many of you, when my mom passed away a couple years ago, you pulled me aside to say, you should not have been here the Sunday after. But I wanted to be here. Our worship leader was gone. Vernon was preaching. And I was leading worship. I wanted to be here to show you that when you suffer, you don't shrink back. You keep doing the normal things that God has called you to do in that day. Because your pastor is meant to be an accessible picture, not perfect, but an accessible picture of what God is for you in Jesus. We are under shepherds to the great shepherd. Suffering has left Naomi bitter. And in her suffering, she fails to see God's providential hand for good in her life. But thankfully, there is more to her story. And you and I need to see it as we move to application so that we can see how God governs our sufferings towards our good. So let's get to application now. And the application, the call for you is for you to Look for God to sustain you through suffering as you focus on his son. In our application, we need to see how Naomi's suffering connects to our lives. Now, connection one, you and I most likely have not been through famine. I mean, I'm hungry last night, but I grilled two hot dogs over an open fire. I had 
two huge s'mores last night. And all the fun, yummy party sides you made. I'm hungry right now. I can't wait to eat today. But I do not know what famine feels like. And most likely neither do you. We do not know what it is like to have no food. But, connection two, we do know what it's like to love people who are disobedient to God. Right? We know what it's like to suffer through the consequences of their decisions. We know what it's like to suffer through the loss of a spouse, through the loss of a family member, through the loss of a child, through the loss of loved ones. And these losses have made us bitter. We are angry with God. We are resentful with God. We blame God for the adversity that we have experienced. We'll sing on the canvas, on the clay, but God, please do not actually put fires underneath me. Don't paint on me that way. It hurts. We, too, believe that God is against us. But like Naomi, that's only a half-truth. God is ultimately responsible for all things that has entered into our lives. As Dr. Sproul, that great Presbyterian preacher and theologian, he says there's no maverick molecule in the universe. Though Satan may intend it for evil, our God, as we learned last week, intends the same thing to accomplish our mission and for our good. So you may ask, Pastor, how is the death of a husband? How is having hungry boys? Or how are the death of your two sons? How can that work for good? How can it ever work for good? That makes no sense. That's what the secular says. That's what the atheist says. But we're going to see this at the end of Naomi's story. The application for us today is for us to look at God to sustain us as we are suffering, to look to a son in our suffering. Naomi wrongly thought that she left Bethlehem full and she came back empty. She was looking at her suffering too simplistically. She found ultimate significance in the wrong things. Above Elimelech, she had God as king. Above her sons, she had Ruth. So we left Naomi and Ruth back in Bethlehem during barley harvest. Did you catch on to that earlier? Bethlehem has just survived famine. No barley. That means no bread. Can you imagine no bread? Now harvest is here. Sorrow lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Famine, harvest, prosperity, adversity. Two widows are in Bethlehem with no land, no job, no way to provide for themselves. So what do we see Naomi doing throughout the book of Ruth? She goes to action. If we were to continue reading... If we're doing Ruth through a series right now, we would see that the next day, Naomi sends Ruth out to glean in the fields. Naomi's old. Ruth is young. She needs to go and glean in the fields. And because you and I are 21st century, modern, sophisticated people, we miss out on the magnitude of what's going on here. In ancient Jewish culture, 
God provided in his word to allow the less fortunate to glean in fields that did not belong to them. Every single day, my father-in-law on his property has these squirrels that like to steal nuts that does not belong to them. He has cages around all of his fruits. And he gets mad. He gets his gun out to shoot them <laughs> if they approach his property. Right? Could you imagine one day you wake up and someone's picking your guavas, your peaches, selling those sunflower seeds? But in this society, the less fortunate were allowed to glean from your fields. Those nuts, those fruits, those cows did not belong to you. They belonged to the less fortunate. Do you get that? That's not how American culture works. Western, capitalistic. What is mine is mine. That creeps to the church and impacts your generosity, which we'll talk to throughout the year. God provides, has always provided for the needs of his people through generosity through his people acknowledging that what is mine ultimately is not mine. Those seagulls in Finding Nemo have it wrong. It's not mine, 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 mine. <laughs> this is our theology of giving at Heritage. But do you see the link between suffering and giving? Did you see it last week with Joseph? In the years of abundance, he stockpiled. And then in the years of adversity, he liberally gave away. Your fields, your crops, they're not yours. They're not. And this was woven into Jewish society at the time. Widows were allowed to glean wherever they wanted because ultimately your wealth and possessions are not your own. Now, this was still going on in Jesus' time. You remember that one time him and his disciples were going through some field and they took off, I don't know what, what the, the top of the grain is called, and the Pharisees were so mad about it. But it belonged to them even though it wasn't their field. The less fortunate has God's claim on what we have. By God's providence, Ruth gleans in the fields of a man named Boaz. Boaz is a strong and faithful man who loves God. And in fact, he is a great, 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 great grandson of Judah, which means he's a great, I mean, they all are, but they're, he is a great, 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 great grandson to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Boaz has taken note of Ruth and Naomi. Think about it. Remember, all the city is stirred when they come back, right? Boaz provides for Ruth and allows her to glean as much as she needs from his field and his field alone. Not just for Ruth, but for Naomi. And when Ruth comes home that day from gleaning in the fields, Naomi wants to know, okay, which field did you glean in that day? And Ruth is like, I only glean in Boaz's. And he told me, I can come back as often as we need to. And then we begin to see a flicker of life inside of Naomi. Because out of all of the fields of Bethlehem for Ruth to glean from, God providentially allows and softens Boaz. It's hard to say. You can glean here today and only here today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And Boaz is a kinsman of Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech. Now, once again, because we're modern 21st century Americans, 
we gloss over, we don't really comprehend societally, relationally, what this, what this means. But let me send, spend 30 seconds talking about it. In Jewish culture, not only did God's law provide for the less fortunate to glean from fields that did not belong to them, they had this idea that's called the kinsman redeemer. When a woman in ancient Middle Eastern cultures were widowed, their chance of survival was slim. This was a male-dominated society, but not in Jewish culture at this time. Because when a Jewish woman was widowed, God's word mandated for the nearest family member to take that widow underneath his or her wings, to be their redeemer, to provide for them, to protect them. And what do you know? In God's providence, Ruth just so happens to glean, the very first field that she gleans from is Boaz's field, a kinsman redeemer for Naomi. (sighs) And this begins to bring Naomi back to life. She encourages Ruth, go back tomorrow. If Boaz wants to provide for us, let him do it. And eventually Naomi tells Ruth about their cultural custom of the kinsman redeemer. And Naomi encourages Ruth to approach Boaz about it. Like when they are threshing the grain, you come to me, you say, you cover me with your wings. You redeem me officially. You take me on. And Boaz, when he hears it, he's like, boy, yes. And he does not let the day rest till he's gone through the steps in the process to redeem Ruth. And along with Ruth, her widowed mother-in-law, Naomi. What I want to pick up here in conclusion, our application, is how God takes Naomi's sorrows and re-injects joy into her. This comes from the ending of Ruth. In the fourth chapter, verses 13 through 17, the writer says that Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, he went into her. The Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women of Bethlehem said this to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life, a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And Bethlehem women named him Obed. And then we cannot overlook this. He is the father of Jesse. He's the father of David. You have to remember, we focus on Naomi today, but Ruth too is a widow, a young widow. And you have to remember that she was married for 10 years childless, barren, 10 years of trying to have children. And then her husband died. And as God opens her womb in her second marriage with Boaz, he also closed her womb in her first marriage. God is sovereign over all things. So he can govern all things towards our greatest good in his son. And we have to affirm here, that God's greatest good for Ruth was not to have a child with Naomi's son, 
but to have a child with Boaz. We'll get to why in a moment, but this is how our God works. What this means for us is that as we strive to look to God when we are suffering, you and I cannot come to quick conclusions about God. That's a byproduct of our nature and living in America. We want quick, easy, fast, practical solutions. Seven tips for when we suffer. And there's no seminar, no three-hour seminar you can listen to that can address the complexity of your suffering and your hurts. Yes, God allowed Ruth to become a widow. But even more, God is the one who brought Ruth to Bethlehem. God is the one who brought Ruth to glean in Boaz's field. God is the one who opened Ruth's womb to conceive Obed. All right, that was Ruth. Let's get back to Naomi. Today's about Naomi. The first thing I need you to see is the relationship that the women of Bethlehem have in Naomi's life. The community, these women of Bethlehem, speak into Naomi. They bless Naomi. Do you see that? And look at what they say to her. God has not left you without a redeemer. Think about it. Boaz is not Naomi's redeemer. That's Ruth's redeemer. Who's the redeemer in this situation? It is a child. It is a son, a son of Judah, a son of Ruth and Boaz, who is her redeemer. Keep that in mind. Bethlehem knows this, and Naomi is coming to love this. Can you see it here? Can you see? Sorrow lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The community knows that through this child, Naomi's joy will be restored, and she will be sustained in her old age. They also know that Ruth, in Ruth, Naomi has a daughter that is better than seven sons. Remember, this is a male-dominated society. In traditional Middle Eastern cultures, unfortunately, sons are more valuable than daughters. Sons can do hard labor in the fields, or so the idea goes. Sons are tasked with protecting the fields, protecting the crops, protecting the flocks, and protecting the family. A family that has 10 sons can defend maybe a group of wolves or raiders. The more sons, the more secure you are in a traditional society. Security comes through number of sons. And Ruth is more valuable than seven of them. You see that? Some people think that the Old Testament diminishes the value of a woman. They have never read the book of Ruth. Another reason why I love the book of Ruth. God has always placed high value on woman because she too is 100% image bearer of God. Naomi thought she was full when she left Bethlehem, but Naomi was wrong. Now Naomi is full. And she is full because God restored and sustained her through his work in Ruth. God restored life and sustained Naomi through Obed. Obed was her redeemer. So in our suffering, we cannot come to quick conclusions about God and his motives and why he is doing, why he is allowing the fires to be stoked in our lives. Ruth chapter 4 is decades in the making. Naomi has suffered through famine, a disobedient husband, 
the death of her husband, and the death of her boys. Naomi has experienced widowhood and destitution. And all of these experiences in their totality brought Ruth to Naomi. All of these experiences brought Naomi back to Bethlehem. And if Naomi didn't experience these sufferings, she would not have found such joy in Ruth and Obed. Now let's make it practical because I told you, how can the death of a husband and boys somehow work out for good? Think about it this way. If Ruth and Naomi were sisters here in our church, we could talk to them, right? And I would want you to ask them when you're suffering, was it worth it? Was the famine, losing Elimelech, losing Malon, Chilion, was it worth it, Naomi? Ruth, was it worth it? Now, you leaving your home country, being a foreigner, taking on a new God, a new religion, a new family, a new town, was it worth it? You know what they would say, right? That is why the agnostic, the atheist, and the secular like to say that suffering is the greatest threat to Christianity. The existence of suffering is the greatest threat to secularism, and agnosticism, and atheism. Because you know these two women would say, you know what, I would rather be back in Moab with Elimelech. I mean, yes, of course my heart is grieved. Of course my heart is hurt. But right now, where I am at, there's no other place I'd rather be than here in your love. Remember that one? Okay. She would say, my daughter, is worth more than seven sons. Obed has been a redeemer and a restorer and a sustainer. And right here, we have to ask, what is so special about this baby boy? Pastor, you just told me family's not ultimate. It's good, but not ultimate. And here we find this baby cradled in her lap. She's the nurse now to Obed. What is so special about Obed? Ruth and Boaz bore Obed. Obed is the father of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David. David is the father of Solomon, and Solomon is the great, 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 great grandfather of our Lord Jesus. In Obed, this is what this means. In Obed, Naomi experienced a glimpse, an appetizer of God's redemption in and through the ultimate son of Ruth and Boaz, Jesus, our Lord. Do you see it? God included Naomi in his redemptive purpose in this world. God included a woman in his redemptive purposes in this world. God included a non-Jewish woman in his redemptive purposes in this world. God included Naomi in his mission to bring Jesus into this world. Satan wants to use suffering to detach you from God and therefore to detach you from God's mission in this life. But God, time and time again, uses suffering to accomplish his mission and we don't need to look further than the cross as proof for this. The greatest point of suffering in human history was the greatest accomplishment of God's mission. Keep that in mind. Suffering and mission go together. 
And here's the thing, Heritage, you have a greater son of Ruth than Obed. Amen? You have the Lord Jesus to focus on. And when you look to Jesus in your suffering, he promises to be your redeemer, restorer, and sustainer. How? Jesus not only took on your sins on the cross, but your sorrows. We sing an old hymn in this church. He took my sins and my sorrows and my sorrows and he made them his very own and he bore that burden to Calvary, right? Where he suffered and died alone. Jesus took on all of your sufferings on the cross before you were even born. If you focus on Jesus, who suffered before you, who suffered with you, you will see that suffering does not mean that God is against you. You will see that God is overwhelmingly for you. That is our theology of suffering. If you make Jesus your focus, he will sustain you through all of your sufferings because he already conquered them on the cross. So the question is, are you looking to the greater son in your sufferings? Are you looking to the greatest son in your sufferings? Or have you given up on God because your suffering has made you bitter and angry and resentful? Have you detached from authentic community who can come alongside and encourage you? But you say, Pastor, you're here. But you know relationally. You, you can be present with somebody and not be present, right? That's why we escape to our phones. You can say that you're present, but you're not really present, right? You're incubated. You've got a layer between you and addressing your suffering. Naomi's suffering is an example of what it looks like to stay focused on God over the hurt. So keep looking to Jesus in your suffering. Keep looking and putting yourself in his word. Keep putting yourself into this church family. Teach your mind to preach to your heart to fight against self-pity. And Jesus will be your redeemer today, your restorer of life, because on the cross he took your sufferings and he made them his very own. Amen?